And now we are going to talk about counseling people with medical illness, which brings me to my first question for you all is, how would you like to die? Um, what'd you say? You want to die today? You're ready. <laughs> you know, you'll be the first person who's ever said that. I've never met anybody who said they wanted to die today, but quickly, she says, soon. Uh, this is class participation time, and I will wait until you answer me. Uh, you want to die in your sleep? Yes. You won't either hear or see it coming, either one. Next. Come on. What? Peacefully. All right, peacefully. In a blaze of, you wish to go out in a blaze of glory. You wish to be remembered, <laughs> at least for something. A large explosion, a large flaming explosion. Okay, come on, come on, we're not done yet. What? Painlessly, yes, I, I hadn't heard that yet, and I was surprised that nobody had mentioned that. Anybody else? Yes, sir. With a smile on your face. You know, there is much to be said that by that. You know that smiling makes you feel better even if your situation doesn't change? Do you realize that? And the reason why is because your brain, when you put your face into a smile, your brain starts making assumptions about what's going on that have actually nothing to do with what's going on. So smiling, walking around with a smile on your face will actually make you feel better no matter what's happening. Besides that, you owe it to the public. Most of us need to smile. Take a good look in the mirror in the morning and you'll understand why it would be probably be better if you smiled. <laughs> Anybody else? How do you want to die? Come on. What? Very old. Yeah, that's, that's admirable. My, you know, nobody said this yet, but my dad used to say that he wished to go by the upper taker instead of the undertaker. <laughs> Yeah, he, he wanted to miss the whole dying thing altogether. Yeah, that's right. What's wrong with all that? All this. We have absolutely no control over it. In fact, it says in Hebrews 9, 27, what? It's appointed unto man once to die, and after that, the judgment. And I can tell you that is one appointment that neither the patient nor the physician will be late to. We will all just be on time. I used to take great comfort with, from that when I was a young physician, because you are making decisions that sometimes you convince yourself our life and death matters. And the truth of the matter, after a while, I figured out that I really couldn't kill anybody before it was time. Just couldn't. Yeah, that was in God's hands, not so much mine. I suppose I get to get to do this lecture on medical illness because I am a practicing physician. And, and I would tell you that's really not much of a qualification to help people who are in the middle of physical illness. I can remember the, uh, being 26 years old, uh, starting to practice medicine within the first week, having to tell a young mother of three small children that her heart disease was incurable and that she would surely die. And I can tell you that I don't think anything that I said was very helpful to her. I can't remember it. I probably suppress it just because I didn't know what to say. I sort of blamed the old guy who uh, retired and left me with it. You know, it's, it's like that scene in What About Bob? Have you ever seen What About Bob? If you have not, you should. And, and it's that opening scene where, where the one psychiatrist is calling uh, the other... Uh, what, who, who played that part? Huh? Richard Dreyfus. Yes, he's calling him and saying, would you take this patient? And at the time he's talking to him, he has his telephone line in his hand with a knife in it. And as soon as it, Dreyfus says yes, he cuts it. Yeah, so that he you know, can't contact him anymore. Oh. Anyway, I, I, I really didn't think that what I knew about medicine was very helpful to that, um, to that woman. I thought it would get better as I went along because I would gain more experience. And what actually I found was that the whole process got worse. And the reason why it got worse was because I knew them and I liked them. I cared about them. I found that I could not insulate myself from the suffering of my patients and because of that I it even convinced me more that that there was a God and that I was created in him his image because God does not insulate himself from our suffering does he no in fact he took on flesh and came down and suffered with us and then suffered for us uh, in order to save us I would tell you if you want to know how to best how to be the best you can be in helping people who are struggling with medical illness, 
you should uh, forget medical school and study the Bible. Uh, You will, the writer of Hebrews tells us that we do not have a high priest who cannot be touched by the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. And then it tells us to come boldly to the throne of grace, to find help in time of trouble and grace to help us through that need. So for a moment, let's look at the Gospel of John, my favorite book in the Bible. I got saved, I I was saved at the age of 19. I lived in a Christian home from the time I was 11. My parents and my brother accepted Christ as Savior. I went forward, mumbled a few words, was sprinkled into the Methodist church. Later, I mumbled some more words and was dunked into the Baptist church. I always tell people I was a Baptist a lot earlier than I was a Christian. But what ensued after that was a, a sort of ground war between me and my parents as they became more Christian and I became more worldly. I, I wished, and I was relatively intelligent and endeavored not to get caught, but tried to do just about anything I could in a worldly nature because, well, that's, that's what you're like before you know Christ. Until I got out of high school and into college and was trying to get into medical school. I decided at the age of 11 that I wanted to be a doctor and pretty much stuck with that most of the time. Every once in a while, I think about doing something else and then I'd remember that I still really wish to be a doctor. And college, it was harder than high school. I don't know if any of you noticed that. I sort of breezed through high school. It really wasn't a terrible challenge. I got to college. It was like, yikes, you're not helping me much here. They weren't. And, and I can remember making deals with God. You know, God, if you would help my grade point average, I'll become a better person. And, and so I, I, I became a gold-plated hypocrite. I, I started teaching fourth grade Sunday school boys. I feel sorry for them to this day. I I, um, I I went to church three times a week, you know, it was Sunday morning, Sunday night, and uh, Wednesday night prayer meeting, and then I, I sang in the choir, because I, I could sing, and and then um, I can remember at one point the pastor telling us that we really, if we really wanted to make a, a run of it as being Christians, we should read the Bible through every year, and that's where I came to the notion that you have to read three chapters a day and four on Sunday. If you do that, you get through the Bible every year, and I've done that ever since. Uh, And the reason why that was vitally important was because eventually I got to John chapter 14. I I did. We're not going there. We're going to John chapter 11. But I got to John chapter 14, and I read from 14 through 18, and I saw Jesus for the first time in my life. And not long after that, I, uh, I, I asked him to be my Savior. So John chapter 11, familiar story, it's Lazarus. I I can't read the whole thing and I I can't preach the whole thing. There's a wonderful four-part sermon in here that I intend to drill into your heads very briefly so that you'll walk away knowing how to help people who are sick, even those who are dying. And it it starts in verse 1. Now a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary, and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. So the sisters sent word to him saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. And when Jesus heard this, he said, this sickness is not to end in death, but for the glory of God, so that the Son of Man may be glorified. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. And so because he loved them, when he heard that he was sick, he ran off right immediately, <laughs> didn't he? He, he? he went as fast as he could. He got there in a matter of hours, didn't he? No, he didn't. It says he sat down for two days. Literally sat down for two days and he let Lazarus die, didn't he? And, and then it's time to go. And when, when, he, when he's getting ready to go, the disciples, he, he tells them it's time to go wake Lazarus out of sleep. And then the disciples say, oh, well, that's great. He's sleeping. If you, you know, if, if he's sleeping, he'll, he'll recover, he'll do well, because they didn't want to go there because they knew that the Jews wanted to kill Jesus and the Jews wanted to kill him, them as well. They were afraid for their own lives. And so then Jesus says, I think the most remarkable thing in scripture about illness said any place, looks at them and says plainly, Lazarus is dead and I am glad. Think about that for a moment. Those are, try preaching that at a funeral. Fred is dead, and I'm glad. <laughs> I mean, you'd be lucky to be get out of the funeral home in one piece, you know. 
No, but why was he glad? What, what can we know about this story at this point? We know that Jesus knew all about Lazarus, didn't he? And we also know that Jesus had a plan. And that plan included Lazarus being sick, suffering, and then dying. And then Jesus goes off, and he uh, gets to Bethany finally, and there's Martha and Mary, and Martha comes running out and um, says to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Which, you know, how do you translate that into meaningful words today? You would say, well, if you'd been, where were you when I needed you? Do people ever say that to God when they get sick or when something bad happens to them? Do they ever? Of course they do. Where were you when I needed you? And then they converse back and forth and Jesus heads to the tomb and on the way Mary comes and says the same thing exactly the same thing which meant of course that Martha and Mary had been chewing on him for at least uh, two days you know longer than it should have taken him to get there and at that point Mary falls at his feet collapses weeping and um, and Jesus looks at her and looks at Martha and looks at the rest of the crowd and they're all weeping and it says that Jesus wept which gives us our third point in the sermon. The question is, when you get sick, you want to know if God cares, don't you? And the answer is right there. He cares, yes. Jesus cared about Martha and Mary. It's paradoxical, isn't it? I mean, what's Jesus going to do in five minutes? He's going to raise him from the dead, so why is he crying? I mean, you know, it's like he should be smiling. Oh, well, you're going to get over this. It's not going to take long. You know, just hang in here for a second. We'll take care of all of this. But no, he, he wept. And the reason why he wept was because he cared. He knew what Lazarus had suffered through. He knew what Martha and Mary had suffered through. And he cared. So that's three points. No, have a plan and care. And then Jesus acted, didn't he? He goes, goes to the grave. There's the ensuing argument with Martha about whether Lazarus stinks. You know, you know, Lord, he smells. It reminds me of that scene in the world's greatest movie, The Princess Bride, when Billy Crystal is arguing with, with the Spaniard and the giant over whether or not Wesley is dead. You know, he's only partly dead. No, no, you know, and they're saying, no, no, he's really dead. And, you know, and, and before it's over with, he was only a little dead. He wasn't completely dead. Well, Lazarus was... Thoroughly and completely, four days in the grave, stinking dead. And Jesus goes to the tomb, has them roll away the stone, and, and calls it. First he prays, and it's, you should read the prayer. It's really kind of funny because Jesus is saying, the only reason why I'm praying is because the people standing around me here. And I want them to listen so that they'll understand that I've, I've, I'm asking you to do this, and, and you're doing it because I'm asking and, uh, and then he cries out, Lazarus, come forth. Consider the person who got the worst deal of the day. Who's the person that got the worst deal of the day? Lazarus. Yes, Lazarus had been where for four days? Well, he'd been in heaven. <laughs> he'd been in heaven for four days, and he gets this email from God. <laughs> Lazarus, you're going back. <laughs> I can imagine that somehow or another he might have objected. <laughs> to leave heaven's glory and come back to this stinking, miserable place where people would want to kill him before it was over with. Yes. So with a four-point sermon, Jesus knew. Jesus had a plan. Jesus cared and Jesus acted. And I tell you, if you want to help people who are struggling with medical illness, those are the four points that you need to know. Those are the things that you need to know. Now I'm going to ask if anybody has a Kleenex in the crowd that they wish to give me because my nose is starting to run and I don't want to keep wiping it in front of you with my hand. Two will do. Thank you very much. It's allergies. I am not sick. This is the Ohio Valley. If you live in the Ohio Valley, your nose runs this time of year. All right. So that's the four-point sermon. Now tell me, what would have Mary gotten if she had gotten her will about Lazarus's situation? Jesus would have showed up on time, and what would she have gotten? He would have been healthy. Yes, small potatoes. What did she get instead? Well, she saw something none of us have ever seen. I could tell you, we could enter out, we could empty this joint in a heartbeat if we had a dead body in here and I raised it from the dead, couldn't we? You guys would be gone, boom, right through the back door as quickly as possible, yes. 
Yeah, they got to see the glory of God. That's what they got to see. They got to see God do something that only God could do, which is give life. So it was a much better deal than they were asking for, wasn't it? Yes. And it was very important because if you read on into chapter 12, so many people accepted Christ as their Savior. So many people believed in Jesus that not only did the Jews wish to kill Jesus and his disciples, they wished to kill Lazarus. They would have killed Lazarus as well. Oh, the world's longest introduction is over now, folks. <laughs> so how can you prepare to help people who have medical illnesses? You know, people who are sick struggle with problems. You know that Martha and Mary and Lazarus did for those four days. It involves physical pain, loss of function, uh, loss of ability, loss of life. Uh, it can re- re- result in loss of income. Consider the plight of Martha and Mary once Lazarus was dead. You know, in the society at the time, it was unusual for women to own or conduct businesses. Not the usual thing. Generally, they had a male relative, either a husband or a brother or a father or somebody who helped them in that regard, and they lost that individual. It strained relationships, didn't it? It strained a relationship between Martha and Mary and Jesus, and they were dear friends. Whenever Jesus would preach in Jerusalem... And he'd leave at night and go out to Bethany, and he would stay with Martha and Mary and Lazarus. These were not casual acquaintances of his. So it strains relationships. It brings emotional distress. All that weeping that was over in a moment. The losses and suffering were real. This wasn't any joke. Lazarus didn't swoon. Lazarus was dead. That was why Jesus waited as long as he did. He didn't want any mistaking about it. He didn't want anybody claiming that, you know, Lazarus was playing dead or, or that he was just asleep and Jesus woke him out of sleep. Then, those folks are going to need someone who can show them the love of Christ in a quiet, patient way. I, um, I, I always remind you to remember what Jesus said to Martha and Mary about that offhand comment they made. That really was kind of cheeky, wasn't it? You're talking to God. Yeah. And, you know, like, where were you when we needed you, partner? Uh, And how did he respond to them? Just lovingly. And I can tell you that at times when you talk to people who are ill and who are struggling, they're going to say theologically incorrect and sometimes outrageous things. And you know what you're going to do? You're just going to listen and correct it later. Yes, later down the road, you'll, you'll put that correction. And I remember a friend of mine whose wife died, and we'd been friends for a long time, and, 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 and we'd sort of at times been on opposite poles about counseling. And, and I remember I called him after his wife died. We'd gone out and helped take care of her while she was sick, and, I can, and, and, and we went out to the funeral. And I, when I called him, I, I asked him how he was doing, and the first thing out of his mouth was, he said, Charlie, I don't need you to quote many Bible verses. And so I just listened to that for a while, and and then, you know what I did? I just quoted him Bible verses, yeah. (laughs) Anyway, and when it was all over with, it had been maybe a year down the road, I asked him, what helped you the most get through all that? And he said, guess what he said? The Bible verses, yeah, that's right. So anyway, you, you need to be patient, show them love. They need to know that God has a plan for it and that he needs to be in control. I know of no better place to talk to people about the plan that God has for the problems that they're facing than John chapter 11. Most of the people that I I talk to are struggling have been at it for a good long time. You know, I would say that on the day that uh, somebody loses their loved one, maybe Psalm 46, you know, be still and know that I'm God. Places like that might be a little bit better. But, you know, after they have struggled for a while and, and actually they're looking for the way out of the graveyard, that's, that's always what I say about Jesus and, and Martha when they're arguing. It's sort of like Jesus asking her, when, when do you want to leave the graveyard? You know, tell me, tell me where the tomb is. We can, we can fix this. But when they get to that point, then, then John chapter 11, there's no better place to go talk to them about how God knew about their problem, how God has a plan for their problem, how God cares about their problem, and how God intends to act on their behalf. They need to know that. Now, what are some fundamental concepts to keep in mind? You don't need a physician's knowledge of medical illness to help a person who's struggling with it. 
you really don't, you surely don't need medical records. I know there's another doctor in here and, and, and there are probably maybe nurses and maybe nurse practitioners and physician assistants and those folks would understand medical records. Um, most of you in counseling are probably not going to understand medical records and so they're not going to be much use to you and I, I, don't, I don't send away for them myself. When someone comes in and they want to tell me about their medical problems, I don't get their medical records because I really don't want to know what they have I want to know what they think they have, you know, and how, it's, how they think it's going to affect their illness. What you really need to be willing to do is to listen long and carefully with a, a caring attitude. Uh, I always tell uh, first-year trainees that what you really want to do is to give the counselee in that first visit at least the first 30 minutes, uninterrupted, listening to them. Most people can't talk much longer than that. They'll, they'll run down in 15 or 20, and you may have to ask questions to prod them along at that point. But you give, them, you give them that first 30 minutes. How long do you think the average doctor's office visit in the United States is today? Not including the amount of time that you have to wait in the waiting room. Let's just get rid of that. 15, oh, 15 minutes? Boy, eight. Actually, it is eight. Uh, somebody, t- uh, statistically, that's what it is now. It's down to eight, eight minutes. The company I work for, the shortest visit we have is 20. Uh, th- yeah, that's, that's what we think you need. But... But actually, in the United States, the average is eight minutes. Now, how long do you think you get to talk before the doctor interrupts you and redirects the conversation in the direction that he thinks or she thinks that it will be more profitable, that you'll get to the end quicker? How long do you think you have? Wrong. But you're close. You're not far. It's 35. Actually, it's 35 seconds. They've recorded it and watched it which it's sort of like being on talk radio. You ever listen to talk radio? I'll admit to it. I do on occasion. And the, um, what do they tell you? You have 30 seconds. So since you know that now, what you need is a little three-by-five card. So you, in the 30 seconds that you have before you get interrupted, you can actually tell him about the two or three things that are really important to you and not the whole world because you're not going to get to tell him about the whole world anyway. What happens if you interrupt your counselee in the first eight minutes? or in the first 35 seconds? What do you communicate to them? You care just about as much as the doctor who had eight minutes to talk to them cares, don't you? Yeah, what happens if you don't interrupt them for 30 minutes? What do you give them? It's an H word. Hope, yes, exactly, hope. You, they'll walk out of there saying, this is the first person I've ever talked to who actually listened to me. Yes, and you will give them Great hope. Hope is spelled T-I-M-E in this regard. I think it was Sir William Osler. Osler, actually. It's not Osler. And, and he would tell students that if you let a patient talk long enough, they'll tell you what's wrong with them. Yeah. And my uh, 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 addendum to that idea or corollary is that if you let them talk a little longer, they'll tell you what the last doctor did that helped. So, Listen. The best source for information about the problem is the counselee. And your interest is knowing what the counselee thinks he or she has and how they believe it's going to change their life. That's why they're there to talk to you. They are there as Eve was there, having lost something very important, their health, and wanting to know how they can respond to it in a godly way. Now, how should you respond to all this, to the illness? Well, your strength is not dealing with it from a medical perspective. Your, your strength is to deal with it from a biblical perspective. The, you should accept the diagnosis as given. Uh, if the counselee says they have ADHD, bipolar disorder, or self-esteem problems, or cancer, you don't get in an argument with about them. You just write it down and note it. You don't try to prove or disprove the diagnosis. Uh, You shouldn't recommend any other possible diagnoses or methods of diagnosis. You're not there to refer people. What is it, the University of Cincinnati Medical Center here or something like that? Is that that right? Is that your big healthcare system here? That's one of them. So you're not a a referral agent for them. Uh, they, they They can take care of themselves with that regard. And if there's no cure or relief, you shouldn't attempt to find them one. Um, Because that's not what they're there to see you about. 
And your goal in counseling is to turn their attention away from the pain and suffering to what God is going to do through it. That's what your goal is there for. All counseling is what? What did I tell you the first hour? Quiz, quiz. Yes, you get an A, sir. A plus. Goal-oriented. What's the goal? Glorify God more than they want to breathe. Really applicable to a medical illness lecture, yes. I want to glorify God with my life more than I want to breathe. That is your goal. Your goal is not for them to feel better. Your goal is not to solve their medical problem. Your goal is for them to get firmly fixed in their minds that in the process of every day of their life, whether they're ill or healthy, they want to glorify God. And then you're there to help equip them to do that. All right? Important point. The reason why it's important is because most people... Most people fail in the struggle because they do not have a goal. You know, it's, it's like when they lose their purposes in life because of what has happened to them, that is when they start to sink. And what you're going to tell them is that they haven't lost their primary purpose in life. At no time are we ever going to lose our primary purpose in life. And that is to live in a way, no matter what the circumstances are, in a way that honors, honors God. So what principles can you use to encourage the counselee and instruct them with a medical illness? Well, you should get some understanding of the counselee's illness. You want to get some facts about the illness. The, um, you want to understand how it was diagnosed. Was it diagnosed by a, on physical exam, x-ray, a lab test, or with a pencil and paper test like a Zung depression or a Hamilton depression rating scale? Or my favorite one is the internet. You know, where you, yeah, where you, the, you can be, get yourself declared bipolar by taking a survey on, 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 the, on the internet. And what does that tell you? It tells you either we're dealing with a physical ailment here that's been diagnosed by physical and objective means, or we're dealing with a psychological problem. You want to find out what the natural course of the disease was or is? What's the natural course of the disease or history of the disease? And in that, you want to know the cure. You want to know the cause, the course, the cure, and the conclusion. I'll say those again. Are you, are you ready? Pins ready. So you want to know the cause. You want to know the course of the disease. You want to know the cure. And you want to know the conclusion. Let's take a quick one. Emphysema. Chronic obstructive lung disease. Not everybody who gets chronic lung disease uh, smokes, but a lot of people do. So the cause is smoking. And the course, if you don't quit smoking, what happens to you? You get... Shorter and shorter of breath until you, the conclusion is you die. And the cure is quit smoking. Yeah, quit smoke, don't start. Yeah, that, that's the, uh, the ultimate cure. I could go off on a rant right now. I have a real great riff about marijuana. Don't ever come to me and tell me that just because some state decides that it's recreational and legal for you to smoke marijuana, that it's a good idea. That's nonsense. That is like that movie, Dumb and Then Dumber. Yes, we've spent millions of dollars for the last 50 years telling people that smoking tobacco does what? Kill you. Hazardous to your health. So tell me that now smoking an addictive substance that changes your brain and may cause schizophrenia and bipolar disease is somehow good for you? I don't think so. Anyway, that's free. Natural course of the disease. I blog about it on my blog at goodmoodbadmood.com. Or I have anyway. What's the effect of the condition on the counselee's lifestyle? Does it affect their ability to work, their ability to do important things in life, like uh, be a parent, be a husband or a wife, Christian service, or, or go to church? Does it knock them out of recreation? Does it take them out of the ultimate important thing, like golf? Yes, you all are asleep, aren't you? I was down in Brazil, and, I, and, I, and I, I was talking about that, and I said golf, and they all gave me a strange look, you know, and I thought, you know, man, no, no wonder I don't want to live in Brazil if they don't have golf courses. But then they told me that they misunderstood and that, yes, they do golf down there. You have to understand, I am a doctor. I, I golf whenever I get a chance, but 
How does it affect their lifestyle? Does it take them out of things? Does it, does it prevent them from running? I've, I've had multiple times in my life when I couldn't run for three to six months, and I can tell you that it really was a bother. You know, I, I didn't like it. There, were time, there have been times in my life when people have asked me, do you like to run? And I think about it, and I go, well, I've been running for so long, I can't remember. I, you know, just, I, I really don't know. And then I get injured, and I can't run for a while, and then all of a sudden I realize, oh, boy, do I ever want to run. So... It, has your counselee lost something like that that's important to them? How does it affect their lifestyle? What's the counselee's thinking and attitude about this condition? Are they, um, are they, uh, uh, are they acting like a, a victor, a soldier in Christ's army, or are they acting like most people in the United States? And most people in the United States act, what V word do they act like? We are a, a nation right now of victims, victims to the core. If you don't believe it, turn the television on at 2 or 3 in the afternoon, and who do you see? Yeah, well, on what program? It's Dr. Dr. Phil. Yeah, I mean, that's just one victim right after another, isn't it? I hope, I, I hope you guys don't watch Dr. Phil. I really I hope you don't. And if you do, I wish you'd repent. <laughs> so anyway, most people in the United States approach problems in life from a victim-oriented attitude which is exactly the opposite from what we do in biblical counseling. Then, what are the responses of the relatives? Do they, uh, do they see this? Um, do, they, do they see this? Are they biblically supportive of the counselee? Are they critical of the counselee? Are they encouraging the counselee to be a soldier in Christ's army? Are they encouraging the counselee to be a victim? Or are they like Job's comforters? Or like, yeah, three, three original counselors. Yes, the three original counselors in the, in the book of Job. You all remember them, don't you? And they actually did pretty well for, I think, was it three days or so? Yes, it said they came and they sat, and, they, and for three days, what did they do? They said nothing. It was when they opened their mouths that they got in trouble. Oh, I see, that's really a, an instructive warning to anybody who wants to counsel people. You know, always make sure that when you go to help people that actually what you're doing is helping so what's the response of the relatives? What's the effect of the medication that they're taking? Uh, there are lots of medicines today, and lots of them have side effects. The, um, uh, so it's important to know what those are. Uh, one medicine that's used to treat migraine headaches and a lot of other things is called to- Topamax. And uh, one of the side effects is that people will find it hard to remember words. And um, it, it, so those kind of side effects you, uh, you want to find out from the counselee. Then, how's the, how's the illness being treated or managed? Uh, do, you know, if they have prostate cancer, are they having uh, radiation? Are they having surgery? Or are they having wakeful watching or whatever they call it today? Um, uh, so th- those would be the kind of questions you ask. Then the next one would be, is, uh, is the treatment going to be effective? Has the doctor told them that they have a 99% chance of being cured? Or has the doctor told them that, you know, you're going to live six weeks if things go well? Um, so you need to ask that from the counselee. What are the potential complications that come from the use of medication? I think the one that everybody asks about first when it comes to cancer is, what do you think? Will my hair fall out? Somebody said it out there. Yeah, yeah, will my hair fall out? Um, so complications from the use of the medications. You want to know the spiritual condition, just like with Eve, you want to know if they're saved or unsaved, what their view of God's role in their life is um, and how they view the um, so you want to know their personal relationship with the Lord how they fit God into the problem in the same way that we talked about with Eve and then you want to know what their understanding is of the authority of scripture in their life if the Bible says something about what you're doing uh, and it's wrong are you will you change it that's, that's a question you ought to be answering your counselees. If they say no, then you're going to have a, a significant amount of education to do uh, along with the rest of your counseling. Then you want to identify your counselees' problems. What are the presenting issues? Usually they are problems with regard to the way the counselee is acting or the way they're thinking or how they feel about what's going on. You want to identify their heart issues. Usually the, one, the things that I see are fear and worry and anger and a focus on self. And then a stark biblical illiteracy today. Um, I, I don't know about you, but I, I, I don't expect unsaved people to know very much about the Bible. 
But I, I tell you, biblical illiteracy is alive and well in the church. Uh, when I have counselees come in who tell me they go to church and I ask them to turn someplace in the Bible, where do you think most of them go first? They go to the table of the contents. Yeah, what, what does that mean? They don't read it. If you read the Bible through every year, eventually you kind of know where every book in the Bible sort of is. You at least to know, know where to go to look. So I, I, I encourage you as you counsel that before you're done with your counselee, that you get them firmly set on a regular uh, purposeful reading of the scripture uh, through, through the Bible once a year. Probably takes about 20 minutes a day. Maybe 30 if you're not a real quick reader, but no, most people read it in 15 or 20 minutes. Then you need to give them hope. Yes, hope that there can be victory in pain and suffering uh, when it cannot be relieved. You need to teach them the promises of God concerning his character. Again, I think John 11 is a great place to go to teach the know, the plan, the care, and then the action that God intends to take on their parts. Then you need to cast a vision of what God can do in their lives. They need to understand that God, as Jesus said in John 17, uh, the chapter that I was reading when I saw Jesus for the first time, where, where Christ says, sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. John is, is an amazing literary uh, book. It's, I, I, I think it's one of the best literature written ever. And it, I suppose it should be, you know, since John was writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He had a great editor. Anyway, the, um, uh, they need to see that. They need to understand, as Paul said, that if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things are passing away. New things are coming. That there is hope for change in their lives, no matter what their life situation is. You need to illustrate how they can have victory in the middle of human frailty and in difficult circumstances. I uh, often, you know, as you counsel for a while, you gather uh, case histories, uh, and, and I, I have a bunch. Um, but uh, And you can use uh, them, as I did uh, in the, the first lecture. If you sanitize them, you shouldn't be telling other people's stories to the next counselee that just tells them that they can't trust you. <laughs> you know, so I, I, I only tell stories that I have permission, and I always assure the counselee that I'm not going to tell their story to anybody else without their permission, and I would ask them for it. Um, but anyway had a dear friend who taught me counseling at Faith, among many there, uh, was Lloyd Jonas. And while I was there and while Lloyd was there, uh, Lloyd got prostate cancer. And what that meant was that Lloyd had, and he chose radiation treatment, which meant that Lloyd every day of the week for mm, a couple of months or more, I think, went in and every morning they gave him a radiation treatment. And um, I'm not going to describe the details of it because since you've just eaten lunch, but uh, let's say it's not exactly comfortable and they get you all set up and then they run out of the room and press the buttons because they don't want to be in the room where you are. You're in the nuclear oven. It's like the dental hygienist who takes your pictures and runs out of the room and say, just hold still, I'll be right back. And you're going, what, can I go out there with you? And the answer is no. And, you know, obviously they can't, don't want to get the whole burden of radiation that, that you're going to get. But anyway, most of us, when we're told we have cancer, who do we think about first? And foremost, huh? Come on, let's be real honest. Who are you thinking about when you're sitting in the room with the doctor and the doctor says, well, I have bad news for you. You have cancer. You think about you. And, and, and while you're thinking, my brother, a guy told him he had, cancer, he had cancer on the side of his nose and they took part of his ear lobe from behind and then put it in the hole where they took it out. And so now my brother says that when people talk about him, his nose burns. Oh, oh, that's terrible, isn't it? Yes. Anyway, my brother, my brother said that when the doctor told him he had cancer, I did, he said, I didn't hear another word the man said. You know why? Well, because he was recalculating life. Yeah. All of a sudden, the calendar resets. Boom. Just like that. And I, I always tell people, if, if, you're, if you think you're going to the doctor to get bad news, take somebody else with you. You know, somebody else who's going to listen when, when you quit listening. Anyway, so we tend to get all wrapped up in ourselves when, when we find out that we have something like that. And Lloyd could have done that, couldn't he? But Lloyd didn't. Lloyd instead was, was thinking about somebody else all the time he was going in every day. And it was of the young man who was setting him up for the treatment and who was running out of the room to press the button. 
And you know what Lloyd did every day that he went in? Lloyd shared part of the gospel with that guy. Every day that he went, it's a captive audience. Guy can't go anywhere. What's he going to say to him? He has to listen. There is nothing else to do. There's no escaping this. And before it was over with, do you know what happened? The young man accepted Christ as his savior. Yes, that's right. What is that? That is what God is willing to do in our lives in the middle of difficult circumstances if we are willing to quit thinking about ourselves so much and start thinking about the people that God has put around us that we can minister to in the middle of the process. That's exactly what it is. Now, as you counsel counsel people who struggle with medical illness, you don't want to be manipulated by their behavior. Do not counsel them according to their labels. I'll tell you that in the next lecture. Instead, look at how they're thinking and how they're acting and and, and what their emotions are and and deal with them out of the scriptures. Uh, Use biblical terminology to describe their problems if counselees are fearful or worried or angry or if they're self-interested they need to know exactly what the bible calls it and what they are supposed to do about it you don't want to get in the position of maximizing or minimizing a person's symptoms i can't tell people if they hurt or they don't and i do not try even as even as a physician you need to build involvement with them as they struggle i um you need to develop a meaningful relationship with that person in order to minister to them and this is where i say um, I'm, this is not a, um, uh, a criticism of people who do biblical counseling in freestanding centers, all right? Not doing that. I, what I am going to tell you, though, is that I've counseled people in a lot of different places in my career, including offices that I had and, and, and offices in which I worked. And the best place I know of to counsel people is at church, in, in a counseling center in my church. And why do I say that? Because I only get to talk to them for an hour a week. That's it. Now, what can I do if they come to church? Well, I can, if things aren't going well, as I've done in the past, I can bring in another person or another couple, and they can sit with that person, hear the same counseling, and meet with them later in the week, and reinforce doing the homework, and reinforce the things that they've learned, and pray with them, and love them, and help them. Now, I, I can put them in an ABF. I can say, if you're going to come to counseling and I'm going to give you my hmm, maybe $250 an hour or more worth. No, it's probably worth more than that. My time is probably worth more like $500 an hour. That's what a lawyer's worth. I'm worth that much. Anyway, the, uh, um, if I'm going to give you this time for free, then you're going to come to church. You will be in church. Why? Because they need to be under the sound of the gospel, particularly in a place that teaches the principles of scripture that, that they need to know in order to live a godly life. And what else do they get while they're in church? They get friends. They get people who can stand around them and love them and help them and care for them. And then I can send them to an ABF, a Sunday school class or a small group. And those people can do the same. And if you, if you look at counseling in that way, what you're doing is widening your reach. You're, you're getting a greater purchase on the problem. So think about building that relationship that way. You can't, you can't fix everybody in an hour once a week. Then you need to emphasize God's grace in your life and theirs. I don't know what it is about Christians. I find a lot of people fully understand that we are saved by, for by grace are you saved through faith and that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God. We're saved entirely by grace. If it was up to me, I would have gone right on straight to hell. That was the direction that I was headed and there wasn't any real reason for me to change directions except there was a savior who came looking for one of his missing sheep and, and came to get me. Now, I understand that, and most people do. It's by grace, but then somehow or another people get all confused, and they think that after that they're supposed to, you know, suck it up and work really hard. You know, it's, it's time to get to work here. Uh, you know, God has done his part. Now I'm going to do mine to live really hard as a Christian. And they forget that, in, indeed, that after we're saved, guess how we live? We're saved by grace, and we live by, you can say the word, you could say it louder. That's good. You could say it even louder than that. One more time. Very good. Yes. That is how we live. And, and, and your counselee needs to understand that. You need to emphasize God's grace in their life. You need to look for ways to identify with their story. I don't have much trouble with that. I bet you won't either. I, uh, I graduated from medical school uh, with, and from my internship training with a graduate degree in anger. 
Oh, yeah. You know, being uh, medical school was an adversive educational experience. I've always said the two best days in medical school for me were the day that I got the acceptance letter and the day I graduated. Those were the two high points. And when I left, I was an angry person. Why? Because I had dealt with lots of people who were beating up on me because they had been beaten up. And we'd done this for generations in medicine. I don't know if it still goes on or not. But um, anyway, that's the way it was then. And it took me probably five years to figure that out. And um, so when people come in and tell me that they're angry, I, I, I understand it. I, I, I've had to deal with it. When they tell me they're struggling financially, uh, you know, made a few bad decisions uh, early on in practicing medicine, almost went bankrupt, bought a farm, never buy the farm. That, I, me and another guy, we started the former farming physicians of America, and our motto is don't buy the farm. You know, it's our, our advice to all young physicians about bad investments. But, you know, I can understand what it's like to get to work extra, to pay back money that you borrowed that you shouldn't have, and you should have had more sense than to do it. Yes, I can talk to people about that kind of struggle. And when, it, when they come in and talk to me about their children who are driving them insane, I can smile and say, we have four children and 13 grandchildren. Three of, them, three of the children were rather easy to raise. And then there was the fourth who bears my name and looks just like me and probably has a temperament just like mine. And he really put us through the paces. So I, I've seen just about everything that you could possibly see and made just about every mistake you might make in trying to deal with it at one time or another. So look for ways to identify that. I don't think you'll have trouble with that. Encourage them to take steps of growth. And boy, when you assign homework and you tell them to do that homework and they do it, you better, you better talk about it in the next session. And, and you should be grateful that they did it. You should, you should praise them for doing that. And then you better have a meaningful use for that homework because if you don't, guess what's going to happen the next week? They won't do it. They'll quit doing the homework. If you don't attach importance to it, they never will. Then you need to help them in processing the data uh, with regard uh, to, uh, to, to, uh, to evaluate their problems biblically. They need to be able to uh, distinguish between occasions of suffering and occasions of, of sinning. Some folks suffer for no reason other than that they were born. I mean, you know, you're born with an illness. It, it, it wasn't exactly like you chose to be this way. Uh, Eve didn't choose to have a, a genetic disposition to pneumothoraxes, but she had it. Unfortunately, though, we often are able, as, as since, we're, uh, since we are capable as human beings, we can take those opportunities to grow and change and become more like Christ and turn them into opportunities to just frankly sin. So you also need to encourage your counselee to, to get appropriate health care and treatment. They need to see their doctor if they're sick. They need to, they need to be willing to be uh, reasonably submissive to the authorities that God puts in their lives. Humility, uh, an, an, important, an important thing that I, I could wax long about, but I don't have time, so I won't. The, other, the one thing I would tell you is that most counselees need to get eight hours of sleep. How many of you slept eight hours a night? Raise your hands. One. I just see one. Two, three. All right. So how many of you slept six hours or less? Almost all of you. You all are operating out of sleep deprivation this morning. It's probably why you are sitting on the edge of your chairs and hoping that you're not going to pass out. And I would tell you when counselees come in and they're sleeping four and five and six hours a night and they're using an alarm clock to knock them out of bed in the morning and they're staying up to watch Jimmy Fallon and things like that, you know what I tell them? You need to go home. You need to reset your life just a little bit. You need to sleep eight hours. Come back in two weeks, and, I, and then we'll talk. And then I'll be able to tell you if the anxiety and the sadness that you're struggling with is simply due to sleep deprivation versus some other really significant problem in your life. Most of the anxiety and depression that we see in the United States is directly related to trying to burn the candle at both ends. As the counseling progresses, you need to help the counselee evaluate their struggle for biblical reasons for sickness. Why do people get sick? Good question. First reason why people get sick is for God's glory. Yeah, this is John chapter 9. This is the blind man sitting at the side of the road. Jesus and the disciples walk up. The disciples, being the masters of tact, look at the blind man and say, Master, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Poor guy wasn't deaf. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, there he sits, <laughs> having these people say these miserable things about him. And Jesus looks at them and says, you dolts, neither, neither the man nor his parents. He's blind because I'm going to heal him right now. That was it. 
So just like in John 11, Lazarus didn't die because of something he did. Lazarus died because Jesus had to come in four days and resurrect him from the dead. So sometimes we get sick for God's glory. Other times we get sick because it's a benefit to us. What did Paul say about his illness? That Jesus, God, refused to heal him up three times. And when Jesus said to him, my grace is sufficient for you. Your weakness is made strong uh, in, 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 through, through my grace. Um, Paul said it was good for him to be sick because it kept him from being proud. Yeah, Paul looked at that and said, yeah, it keeps me from being proud. So sometimes it's like missing the airplane. You ever read those stories about the guy who just barely misses the airplane and he's all ticked off. He's yelling at everybody. They close the door on him. The plane takes off and crashes. Yeah, yeah, there have been all kinds of people who've done things like that. And you go, wow, maybe it was okay if I was sick because I didn't get there and, and everybody else died, right? So sometimes it's a big benefit to be sick. Then finally, people get sick because of sin. I need for all of you to sit up really carefully now and look me right in the eye. Every last person. Don't want you writing anything for a moment. Want you looking up because this is very important. Because I know that someone may be half asleep and you're going to wake up in the middle of what I say and you'll walk out of here with the wrong message. So are you all awake? If you are, I wish for you to say amen lustily, loudly. Very good. All right. Now repeat after me. Are you ready? Dr. Hodges did not say that if I'm here with a cold, it's because I sinned. That's right. I don't know what it is about biblical counseling, but everybody wants to say that all we ever talk about is uh, people being sick and suffering because of sin. That's right. Well, actually, people do get sick because of sin, don't they? Yes, they, yes, they do. The, the first reason why we get sick because of sin is because Adam and Eve sinned. Yes, they made that choice. Wherefore, as by one man sin entered the world, and death by sin, so death is passed upon all men, for all have sinned. And don't kid yourself. If you had been there in their place, you would have sinned. You'd have made the same bad choice. So sometimes we uh, get sick and suffer because of Adam and Eve sins. And then sometimes we we, we suffer because other people choose to sin. The guy who gets drunk, gets in his car, drives down the road, hits someone head on. Those innocent people in that car, well, innocent of the man's sin, not innocent, but innocent of that man's sin, they suffer because of what that man chose to do. So sometimes we get to suffer because other people sin. And then, yes, sometimes we get sick and suffer because we sin. And if you're here today and you're living in open and unrepentant rebellion against God, you'd better repent because God may choose to kill you. Really quiet out there, isn't it? Nobody's laughing now, are they? Yes, the joke's over. And, and how can I say that? Well, the Bible does, doesn't it? Yes, it does. It says in Corinthians that the, the people who were coming to communion and getting drunk and disorderly, what did Paul say? Some are weak and sickly among you, and some of you are dead. That's exactly what he said. And what did he say to do with the guy who was living with his, his stepmother? Mm, this is almost as bad as Luke kissing Leah, isn't it? yes that's right this is really icky story here yes this guy is living with his stepmother in an adulterous relationship and what does Paul tell them to do put him out why for the destruction of the flesh that the spirit might be saved he wasn't talking about this guy going to hell he was talking about this guy dying dying as a Christian for the sin that he was living in and that's why 1 Corinthians was written it's also why 2 Corinthians was written why because the young man repented which is exactly what you want from church discipline you want someone to repent and the Corinthian church refused to restore him so Paul had to write the letter back and said no 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 he repented you must take him back so sometimes we do get sick and die because of the way that we sin you want to use the counselee story as an opportunity to address the issues of the outward and innered, innered, inward man. Now, what's happening to our outward body, Paul says? It's decaying as we go, isn't it? Yes. I ran a marathon when I was 40 years old in an hour and 28 minutes. Now my son runs those half marathon, half marathon not a marathon, hour and 28 minutes. That would have been good. I'd have been in the Olympics. Yes, that's right. My, my son ran a marathon a couple weeks ago in three hours and 14 minutes, 
and which is a pretty good clip. He came in first in his age group and 10th overall in, I think it was Leavenworth, uh, Idaho or Leavenworth, Oregon or something like that. But I can tell you that right now I am working to try to get back under eight minutes. <laughs> you know, I used to be able to click those miles off in sixes and six and a halfs, no problem. But now I'm 66 and guess what? You know, just as time goes on, we get slower, don't we? Yes. So the outward man decays, but what is supposed to be happening to our inward person? Every day we are supposed to be endeavoring to grow in the Lord as a result of our interaction with Scripture and our interaction with our problems. I hope next year when you guys come back that you don't come back the same person. That would be sad, wouldn't it? Instead, you want to come back better. Yes, you want to come back better in the Lord. All right, then you need to apply appropriate biblical principles. What are principles are those? Well, we need to think biblically about all aspects of illness, Uh, We need to take our thoughts captive for Christ. We need to do as the Apostle Paul tells the church of Corinth, to think on things that are true about our current situation, not things as they might happen. As Sir Winston Churchill said, most people spend half their lives worrying about things that never happen. Yes, worrying about things that never happen. Then... They need, we need, they need to know, our counselees need to know that God cares about their suffering, uh, the suffering of his children, and that he has a plan for it, as it was in John chapter 9 and as it was in John chapter 11. I've taken everything known to mankind for allergies, and none of it actually is all that great. I, I've taken, let's see, I, I've, I've used Flonase, but it gives me nosebleeds. I, I've taken loratadine, you know, the antihistamines, but they give me weird dreams, and after a while, I really don't like them, and um, I I used to take Sudafed, which actually dries my head up, but my wife says it turns me into a jerk, so um, yeah, it's it's a distant relative of methamphetamine, and methamphetamine has a a rather adverse effect on some people's personalities, in fact, most people who take its personalities, so I don't take anything, I just wipe my nose now, anyway... Illness, counseling needs to understand that illness and suffering and allergies are to be expected in life. <laughs> you know, if you live, all who are godly will suffer. Yes, that's what Paul said. It's not, why do I have this? As one lady said, it's, why not? Why not me? Then they need to know that the illness and suffering that they see are under the, the control of a sovereign God. It's what, what Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians, that there's no test taken us that is not common to man. God knows about it. God intends to make us able to bear up under it, to go through it by his grace and with his power. He'll take us through it, a way of escape through it. And he won't test us in it beyond what we are able with his enabling grace in order to do. He, he won't test us beyond that. And then uh, they also need to know that, the, uh, that God won't exceed our ability to handle the unpleasantness of the illness. As Paul would tell us, from prison. I always say that, from prison. Because when I quote out of Philippians 4, people often criticize me. It's easy for you. You're not sick. You know, you're not sick. You have a good job. You're well off, etc. so on and so forth. How dare you tell me that I should look at this in a different way? And I say, well, it was Paul who said this, not me. And where was Paul at the time he said it? He was sitting in prison. Yeah. And I'm, I'm, and I'm, and I'm not talking about the Boone County Jail with cable television and weight room and you know, a nice cot and three hot meals a day. I'm talking about a hole in the ground they put a rock over that didn't have uh, facilities. That's, that's the kind of prison that, that Paul at times was in. And what did Paul say from that prison? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So your counselee needs to know that. Then they need to understand that God intends for believers to have victory in the, in the middle and the agony of illness. As, as Paul said to the Corinthians, thanks be unto God who gives us the victory. And then he tells us in Romans 8, 30, you know, the most, one of the really encouraging passages of scripture that, that I find, particularly for people who are struggling with fear, worry, and trust is Romans 8. Start them at Romans 8, 1. There's therefore no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus and you end with never being separated and never being alone. You're never going to be alone uh, as far as, as God is concerned. I, I, I always tell people when I get to that passage uh, that I don't particularly want to die in a nursing home. 
I, I, I don't think that I could get any volunteers in here who want to die in a nursing home. Anybody want to? Yeah, no hands. Um, but I'm not, it's not a diatribe against nursing homes. What, what I mean to say is that if God so chooses that I, that I spend my last days there and I die at the end of the longest hallway, furthest away from the nursing station, and they don't find my body until morning, that I will not die alone. I won't. The Holy Spirit of God and the angels will conduct me into his presence. We are never alone as believers, period. It's not possible. Where can I go to hide from God? The psalmist would say, no place. Then we need to have compassion for uh, the counselee's suffering. What's the definition of victory? Victory is being controlled by biblical principles rather than the agony of the illness. Not being controlled by the constant pursuit of relief from pain and suffering but instead being controlled by what God is doing as a result of the condition. This gives the counselee a purpose. Lloyd had a purpose all the time he was going through radiation therapy. Did he not? He did. Yes. Took his mind off what was going on all around him. Made the trip more tolerable. So give your counselees a purpose. It provides a response when relief doesn't come. If Lloyd had not survived, he would have still had the privilege of leading that one fellow to Christ. Counseling needs to understand the sufficiency of God's grace, as God told Paul when he didn't heal him. And your counselee needs to have a good understanding of what the Word of God says about their faith and obedience in the matter. And you can use testimonies like Lloyd Jonas that you'll find in your own counseling now, the homework should focus on biblical principles that the counselee needs to apply rather than health issues, as I said. I want to tell our counselees to follow the basic principles of good health, but the main emphasis is on the application of biblical principles to the counselee's response to that illness. And what can we see in that response? Well, what's victory going to look like? Some people will be healed. I believe in that. I'm a doctor. I've seen people healed. Only reasonable explanation for the reason why they suffered whatever they had was an act of God, literally. Uh, I do not believe in faith healers. I don't believe in the guys with, you know, $200 haircuts, $2,000 suits, put people in wheelchairs at the back of the auditorium and then throw them out of it on the platform. That's, that's just about money. But I, I do believe that God heals people. But God doesn't always choose to heal people. He didn't choose to heal Lazarus, did he? And in that case, we get to live out biblical truth. We get to live out the truth before others that, that God is, God's grace will be sufficient for us in the middle of the difficulty that we face. And we get to exemplify endurance, living well to the end. You, yes, front row, uh, burning out, yes. Want to finish well, yeah. Want, want to go out the best way I can in whatever circumstance God puts me in at the end. Then we get to illustrate God's peace to the people who are around us who don't understand why we don't wring our hands and worry like they do. We get the chance to see God's glory expressed in our life just like Lazarus. We, people get to see that we have faith that God is in control of our illness and that he intends to do the best with what's left of our lives. He intends to use us well. Sell yourselves dear, boys. That's what um, some Civil War commander told his soldiers as they marched off to what was probably going to be certain death. Sell yourselves dear. Make sure that you, make sure that you end well. And in that process, a counselee's relationship with the Lord will deepen. Now, what, what can we say about seeing people who die that we love? Uh, well, we don't grieve as others who have no hope, as Paul, as Paul said. And the reason why we don't grieve is because we know about heaven. I can tell you that when you're counseling people who are struggling, who, are, who have terminal illness, and, and, and they are fearful and worry, you need to teach them about heaven. Yeah, why? Because heaven's better, isn't it? Heaven's, heaven's better than those chairs you're sitting in, isn't it? Yeah, you guys are warming up to this idea. Heaven's, heaven's a lot better than this lecture, isn't it? <laughs> uh, yeah, you get some of you are awake still. Yeah, that's, that's good. Yes, heaven will be better, and your counselee needs to know that. 
Paul, keep in mind that Paul struggled with his desire to go to heaven or stay here and minister. One important thing you can do is keep counselees informed about the course of their illness. Uh, I, we're running over, and the reason why we're running over is because the guy before me took five minutes of my time. Is that blame shifting? Are we supposed to do that in counseling? But I'm going to do it anyway. Um, so this is coming out of your, um, out of your break. But uh, this is an important little thing that you need to know. Uh, I, I had a dear friend who was dying of renal cell carcinoma. Uh, he witnessed to the, all the nurses, and they uh, had to listen because you always listen to the words of a dying man. You know, he, he had them where he wanted them. Um, but one day his wife came in and told me she was beside herself, and the reason why is because there were three doctors taking care of him. One would come in and say that he was getting worse. Another would come in and say that he was about the same, and the third would tell her that he was getting better. And it was just killing her. And so she came and asked me what to do. And I told her this, and, and you should remember this. I said, which doctor do you like? And she said, the oncologist, which was good because he was a friend of mine and he was a Christian. I said, you call his office up, tell him you need an appointment. Tell him you want 45 minutes. Tell him you'll pay for it. Don't try to do this when he's making rounds at the hospital because most doctors making rounds are pretty goal-oriented. And you really do want some of his time. And then you go in and ask him two questions. First question is, is my husband going to die? First question. Second question. If he is going to die, tell me how it's going to happen. And she did what I told her, went in, sat down with, with, with Howard, a, a fine Christian man, and he looked at her and said, well, yeah, ma'am, your, your husband's dying. He's going to die. And, and then she asked him the second question, and he graciously explained to her how it was going to happen. And she was greatly relieved. It wasn't, she knew he was dying. I mean, that was as obvious as anything could be. What was killing her was the difference that she was getting between the inconsistency between the positions so more information is always good if you can help your counselee to get it always keep in mind that other than by sudden death or if the lord delays his return all of us are going to die as a result of some illness and keep in mind that that is how god intends to take you to heaven now do you guys want to know how i want to die you don't Oh, uh, okay. We'll come back in an hour and I'll tell you. No, okay, I'll tell you. All right. Uh, I want to die running my last marathon. I want to be running my last 26-mile race. I want to be 97. When I started, it, it was 79, you know, when I started saying this. And every year, it goes up a year, boom, boom just like that. Uh, so I want to be 97. I want to be running my last 26-mile race, and I want to be running towards the finish line. And as I approach the finish line, I want a runaway milk truck to break through the crowd, <laughs> come up from behind, and hit me really hard and knock me across the finish line. <laughs> Just like that. Yes. That's it. <laughs> I figured that'll make the news that evening. 